Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here with my co-host, Lyson Casey. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale at their fabulous office in the East End of Toronto to talk to them about their company, Raw Signal Group. So thank you for having us in your offices today. Thank you so much for coming to us. Yeah, thanks for visiting. Um, So can you tell the audience for a bit of background, what is Raw Signal Group? You actually probably saw it on your way in, but outside of our office, there's a big billboard that says Raw Signal Group, like we build better bosses. And that's sort of the core of the work that we do here. Jonathan and I both came from 20 year careers in technology and got really excited at the idea of helping folks be better managers, better leaders um, and better bosses. We lived this, right? We got promoted when we were, you know, earlier in our careers, we got promoted into management, mostly because we were good at the old job we had, right? I was an engineer. I was I had been engineering for a while. The team was growing. Okay, maybe maybe you should manage the engineers. But when that happened, you know, an announcement went out to the team. I got a new business card, and that was it. And and it's a totally different job to do that job well. But it, I was I was probably a decade into management before I got anything like training. And and so we know what happens when when people try to do this work without a, a background in the skills it takes. And one of the things we see is that people will often sort of draw a lot of identity from the work that they were doing before because it's the reason that you got promoted. And so you get a bunch of praise, you get a bunch of accolades for doing that individual contributor work really well. And then you get into a management role and suddenly the work that you used to do is the stuff you're supposed to put down, but it's the stuff that that everybody keeps telling you you're doing well. And the management pieces are the things that feel hard or awkward or clunky. And there's a lot of incentive to run back to what's safe, what's familiar, what's comfortable. Do you believe that every person can be a manager if they train properly. You said you came from an engineering background and, and you over time developed these skills. Um, do you think anybody can develop them or are there certain people that are inherently uh, good at managing people and others good at like engineering tasks? Before I managed, I had this I had this prideful thing in my head. I was like, you know, when, when I get into management, I'm, I'm certain of this. I am going to be better than any manager that I've had. And, and I wasn't even coming from a real ego place on it. I didn't think I was the best in the world at it. I just knew that my managers were really, you know, sometimes benignly, sometimes maliciously, but not great. Uh, and I got promoted and uh, I, I did ever, all the things that they didn't do. I did one-on-ones, I gave feedback, all that stuff. And I was just a bad boss in a different way. Uh, I just, I was just, I had different gaps. And so I'd say, you know, the, the answer is that there's no such thing as a, as a natural born leader at this stuff. You, you may be charismatic, you may be good at speaking to crowds. If you're not doing one-on-ones, if, if like you're friendly, but being friendly means you never give hard feedback. If, if you know, you're, you're great at, at opening new business, but you're impossible at getting nailed down on goals, this is all the stuff that undercuts you. There's, there's probably a hundred different skills you need to do this job really well, and, and they're learnable. No, I was just going to say that I think it's actually one of the more radical things that we say, that we start from this sort of default assumption that it can be learned and that most folks can can sort of get really, really great at this if they give themselves some time and they have some structure to learn it. The the sort of other thing where we assume that you're a natural born leader or you know you either have what it takes or you don't is really just a, a way of expressing bias. For many organizations, this is a way of saying, I think you look like what I expect a leader to look like. And that leaves so many people who would be amazing bosses behind, right? Because my expectations of what a leader looks like often is somebody who looks like Jonathan, right? 
And, you know, we, we got this letter the other day from one of our alum, and, and it, it, it was the best. Um, she's someone that we'd worked with a couple years ago, and she really didn't want to manage. But her organization was growing. She was going to be in a management role. And she's like, if I'm going to do it, I might as well know how to do it. And so, you know, we did a bunch of work with her company and, and with her. And she emailed us because she's now left that company after a couple years. And, and her team was talking to her about how, you know, she was the best boss they'd ever had. And she still doesn't want to manage, but but she knows how to do it. And that matters so much. And uh, how, how would you say, uh, what's the best way uh, a manager or a leader can go about inspiring their team and making them want to work uh, at the project? So one, when you talk about inspiration, Dave, a lot of the researchers talk about um, motivation. They talk about autonomy, mastery, and purpose, right? That if I want to stay engaged on the work that I'm doing, those are the three things I need to be fed. Autonomy doesn't mean like, oh, I'm a hands-off manager and I never give you any instruction, right? Autonomy is really individual in terms of where I want the freedom to, to go explore my own solution and where I, I need some help in order to go be creative over here. I need some rail, rails over here, right? Mastery, am I being stretched an appropriate amount? And purpose, do I, do I have a sense that I, I care about the work that we're doing? And as leaders, I think a thing that that every leader can do if they work at it is just spend a bit of time thinking about like, why do I care about this work? Right now, what does it say on the website? Now, what does it say in our mission statement? It's great if those things align with why I care, but you're in the gig for some reason, right? Connect to that and and work at it because if, if you've got a reason, it might not be the same as mine, but I'm so much more willing to follow you and believe that your leadership is authentic if, if you can tell a story that that feels true. Do you believe um, from your experience that every leader needs to be inspiring or can some be more kind of reserved or introverted rather than that kind of extrovert personality? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that people find the most surprising is that Jonathan and I are both introverts and people say, but you have you have extroverted jobs. And we say, yes, we are introverts with extroverted jobs, but the reality is at home, we, we like quiet. It's, it's sort of just how we reset. Um, I think many different folks can be really incredible leaders in terms of the inspiration. To Jonathan's point, you need to know the why. You need to know why you're lit up about the work that you're doing. It's very hard to get a team of people excited if you, if you are not excited. And so I don't need you to be sort of out in front yelling or screaming. Um, you don't need to be the person who's sort of the life of every party. But I do think you have to have a core sense so that when your team says to you, why does the work that I'm doing matter? How does this connect to the overarching objectives of the business? Like, it, this is really hard. Does Do we actually need to do it? Like, and, and what's the quality bar, right? Like, does it need to be done really well or does it just need to get over the finish line? I think you'll have different answers if you really understand the core of what the business is there to do and and why you get lit up about that i do think that there's a, a piece though that we we feel like there's a, a a character that a leader's supposed to be right that they're supposed to stand up on stage that they're supposed to ring a bell every time we make a big sale that they're supposed to be jumping and clapping and hooting and hollering and i just i don't i don't need that i i sort of think that if you think back on the people you've worked with you don't need that from them right you just need them to be human and like if if your human self is that you just you get really over the top that your ego is really tied up with the business and that when the business does well you, you do you want to pop champagne okay great like i can i can see that in you even if it's not how i would live it um but if if your character is to express that sense of purpose thoughtfully in a one-on-one -on -one context if you don't really want to be at the front of the room if you want the team who did the work to be at the front of the room right i I would totally follow that leader too, right? I, I don't, I don't need you to be a, a cartoon character. I, I just need to believe in the work that we're doing. 
Yeah, but it, oh, that that belief is important, right? It's not only the work that we're doing, but I think that the piece that you said that I just want to pick up on is that you have to believe that 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 is authentic to that person, right? That lots of different leadership styles can work, but but you don't need to pick a carbon copy of some boss you saw on TV or some boss you had. You need to pick the one that's right for you. Oh right? man, there's all this writing, especially for um, for women in executive roles about like executive presence. Right? How do you like throw your shoulders back and not let other people interrupt you? And it, it just take up so, more physical space. Yeah. Like lean, <laughs> lean across several chairs. Put your feet up on the boardroom table. Yeah, it's there's a there's like um, there's value to saying we need to give people from various marginalized groups different advice, different supports in order for them to to break into a context that really only has one pattern for what they think leaders should look like. There's value in that, but like not in telling those people to pretend to be straight white men like that's not that's not how we're going to make this better right what we need to do is sort of expand our definition of what leadership looks like and you both have a background in tech and work with a lot of companies in tech are there other industries that have gaps here or is tech really where it's missing i think we get a lot of tech clients in part because that's the background that we come from but i think increasingly one of the things that we found is that more of the folks who are struggling are are people who want work to be different than it is and that's universal right there's a set of folks for whom work is not working and the idea that you know we're gonna we're gonna lead in a way that we did 50 years ago and we're just gonna show up to work and expect it to be the same i think in 2019 is is a really dated notion early on when we were i think really before we'd started the business we were writing blog posts and and when we were writing them they weren't really for anything we, we had friends who were investors and stuff and they're like what's it for is it content marketing for something are you it was just it was just to get them out there it was just stuff that we wished someone had told us early in our management career and we did we wrote it assuming that our target was like first time managers in in tech and marketing roles in you know a startup and we started getting outreach from teachers unions and from agricultural auditors and you know and they were saying, wow, you really, you know, you hit the nail on the head in terms of what we're dealing with. I'm like, really? I, 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 I'm amazed to hear that that's true, right? But I think that that human experience of, of what it is to go into a job and either really believe in the work you're doing or really not, to be promoted into a job and feel like you got mastery over it and you understand what's involved or really not, those are, are much more universal than we thought. And it's actually a lot of what drove us to to leave our jobs as tech execs and to build this thing is that we, we started to get a sense that, that this was a, a bigger a bigger problem than we had initially thought. Yeah, when we got going, I think the, the first time we got promoted into management, we were working in the same organization. And I think we thought that, that the, the experience of being promoted from an individual contributor into a position of management and getting no training was, was a function of that organization. And the longer we managed in growing tech organizations and growing organizations in general, the more we realized that that was a universal. That was, a, that was not unique to that time period, to that organization. That was something that the more we talked about, hey, we didn't get any training here and, and we didn't sort of get any any safety net for a lot of the work that we were doing early in managing teams, mo- many, many people put their hands up and said, yes, I have also had that experience and I, I would I would like to understand how to be better at, at doing this work. In fact, we've, we've seen some, I sort of hesitate to call it an industry, but some groups like um, in the nonprofit space, they often have some of the problems that we have in tech, but magnified because they can't just solve it with money. They can't just, you know, hire 10 more people to carry that load, right? Uh, they've also got uh, an employee base, which by definition is very purpose-driven, right? Most of the people, you work in nonprofit, it's because it's you believe in what that organization is doing. 
and and so the the burnout risk is real and the you know the money's always a challenge in a nonprofit and so whether people are paid equitably and, and according to market rates like those challenges are really real and so so many people are being asked to to wear several hats at once so anybody listening who is at that point in their startup where they're ready to hire and build out a team um, can you talk a little bit about the appropriate company structures? Uh, is flat the way to go? Should it be really every single person has a manager above them? Or is it, of course, like everything somewhere in between? Oh, org structure. Yeah. Um, org design is funny, right? You can line up like 100 startup founders and they will all say flat. They will all say that flat is their favorite. You can understand it, right? Most people who, who start a startup... I think to the extent that you can oversimplify about that entire group of people, they don't want jobs at Microsoft, right? Um, most of the time, if you're, if you're starting a technology startup, it's because you want to build something from the ground up. And, and as founders, whether it's a technology startup or, or a restaurant or anything, you, you feel so connected to that business in the early days. And the idea that you would have like a senior vice president managing four directors who are managing 12 managers who have team leads, like the idea that you would be seven hops from someone in your organization is just, it's not only hard to hold in your head, it's really unappealing that there would be that much distance between you and people working on your business. And so I think they default to flat because it, because it feels fairer, because it feels like, you know, they, they don't want to bring a bunch of ego into it. I've met some egotistical founders, but when it comes to org structure, most of them still feel like the best idea should win. People should be able to tell me I'm wrong, even if I'm the CEO, right? They, they erase a lot of that structure. The, the problem is that while that's a really good instinct in terms of sort of humility, the the new employee in your organization who's 23 and is trying to figure it out um they're looking for a sense of what are the accountability lines who who's in charge of what how do i figure out who to take problems to and and in a fully flat structure it's, it's really hard to figure that out i would also add that that many of the the folks feel like flat works when the organization is small but the minute the organization gets outside of a team that fits around one table right and like one not like one giant table but like one one like normal sized dining room table um that that things start to fall over that it becomes harder to get things done it's harder to coordinate the work there's miscommunication the founder leaves the office to go fundraise and comes back and is like what the shit have you all been doing while I've been gone, right? Like those surprises are things that are solved by org design, but org design is like the least sexy topic, I think, for most folks. So a lot of people will cling to, to flat well beyond its usefulness, in part because it's very hard to get excited. I mean, we get excited about org design, but not everybody does. Yeah, there's a, a former CTO at Etsy who, who writes a lot about org structure stuff, and, and there's a new book by Will Larson that just came out too. Um, and one of the quotes from the Etsy CTO that, that has always stuck with me is that as an organization grows, um, communication and coordination of effort dominate everything else. They dominate your technical excellence. They dominate your market opportunity. They, like Communication and coordination of effort become the hardest things to do at scale. And, um, and there's a reason that people end up in tree structures. And it's that well-managed, and a lot of them aren't, but well-managed it's a really good way to manage communication and coordination of effort, right? I know who my boss is. My boss is not underwater, right? My boss has six other people and she knows who her boss is, right? And like that, if that becomes 28 hops of telephone game and nobody really understands how our work ladders in, okay, like we're, we're being mismanaged. That's a problem. The org structure doesn't solve it on its own. But in the absence of an answer to that question, oh, what, like what a disaster to have 40 people who, who don't know who to go to for answers, 
who don't know like how we break ties or how we make decisions. Because what ends up happening is that everything goes to the CEO. We've, we've seen organizations, five, 600 person organizations where the CEO's got 20 direct reports. And wouldn't you know it, when you talk to those people, they say it's hard to get things done. Things move really slowly. Right? Now, I, I don't know that CEO, but I, I bet they're trying to keep it really equitable and they want the best idea to win and stuff. I'm, I'm sure they didn't choose to have their company describe things as going really slowly and bottlenecked, but it, it's you got to confront what the reality is there. I think the other thing that happens is if you don't have a relationship with a boss within the organization, if it if it is all flat, one of the things that happens is there's no definitive like authoritative source on information, and so it, it lends itself really well to rumor mills, right? Because I I don't have clarity, I don't even know where to get clarity, and so in the absence of clear paths to get communication, to your point, like to get sort of a clear sense of what I'm doing. I'll just make it up or I'll ask my coworkers and maybe they'll give me an answer that's useful and maybe they'll give me an answer that's totally out of step with what the CEO wishes that they would have said in that moment. So to switch up topics a bit, um, I'd like to talk to both of you about co-authoring a book. How was that process like? Uh, how did you guys come up with the content and decide who's going to write what and who's going to do what in that process? So the book started as a blog, right? We talked about sort of writing a blog um, to, to sort of capture a lot of the things that we wish someone had told us along the way in managing and leading teams when we were coming up. Um, one of the things that we found was we were trying to figure out like, what to sort of do with that energy. We had a, a seven-month-old, I think, at the time at home who had just started sleeping through the night. And um, we were sort of sitting around in the living room and, and we had cognitive surplus for the first time in a really long time. Like anybody who sort of had a newborn has the experience of, of just not being able to sleep for a while and your brain does funny things with no sleep. Um, and so we really had sort of gotten to the point where, where we were able to form complete sentences again. And we were talking about tech and, and many of the things, this was 2016, there's many of the things in tech organizations that we were like, they should be different than they are. And most folks don't know, right? And can we capture some of the things that we wish we'd known and put them somewhere so that people could find them? But originally, to Jonathan's point, we were just writing for ourselves. We really sort of started with, with just like writing based on things that sort of pissed us off or stuff that we wanted to see be different. And so we started with the, the blog and then the blog, by the time 2017 rolled around, we realized like we had, we had 50,000 plus words written online. Yeah, I, I think I'd always thought that like it would be cool to write a book, but, but also that I would never be able to, right? That I can, I can write 2,000 words about anything. I can't write 50,000 words about anything. Uh, and... And so, yeah, once we noticed that the blog was a lot of the way there, that, that was an interesting sort of fire. But then when we started talking to people in books, I mean, Melissa used to work at Wattpad, so she, she knows half of the publishing world, right? When we started talking to people uh, who, who work on books, they all asked the same question. It was really frustrating. They're like, what's your goal for the book? I don't know, to have a book. And, and like, well, you can have a book, like, that's fine. If that's all you want, then do it. Like, it's pretty straightforward. Um, is your goal to make money? Like, no, we know that nobody makes money off a book. They're like, good. I'm glad somebody's disabused you of that. What's your goal for it? And so we went and we had a bunch of our own conversations about it. And one of the things that we came to is that the book was a different, is basically a different distribution vehicle, right? That we had this blog. And that's great if you're someone who reads Medium blogs about management. But if you're not, there isn't a way to really, you know, there isn't a way to, to consume it. And there also, and, and this was important for us, there isn't a way to hand it to someone else right? That, yeah, people would forward around the links and say, hey, you should check this out. And, you know, we were writing our blog on Medium and, and Medium is helpful about saying, this is a six minute read. Like, here's how much you're committing to by, by clicking this link that your friend sent you. 
but there's a different thing that's possible when somebody can hand you a copy of the book and say like if you don't read the whole thing that's fine but just read chapter seven right and that distribution mechanism ended up being the really important thing that there were a bunch of people who felt like they needed this in a different format in order to value it in order to consume it in order to hand it to someone else um and then we went down the the process of actually how how do you put a book together and it's like speaking as a, a product person and a marketing person books are a a weird a weird thing to go through it's it's poorly instrumented it takes a long time a lot of the major players are incredibly underdocumented. like it it's a weird product to bring to market how they push metadata for amazon is like fascinating i think if you if you're nerdy by nature right if you tend to sort of go down a rabbit hole we had a, a lot of fun with it but i think you have to really want to get excited about that stuff i also want a nerdy by nature t-shirt now amazing <laughs> Um, I would say the other part for us in terms of sort of co-authoring a book was that many, like you'll, you'll see it in the book that every chapter is either a Jonathan chapter or a Melissa chapter. The things that were the hardest to write were actually the the sort of pieces that went around it. So the intro was really challenging to write because it's the blending of our voices. And so we had gotten really good through the process of writing online about defining our own voices. Writing jointly is so challenging, and we're we're better at it now. I'd say sort of three years on, we we are more skilled at it. But that was really hard. Like the back cover of that book took longer, I think, than the a lot of the acknowledgments, which is a knockdown drag out. Yeah, yeah, was, that was a, a skill we had to build for sure. And you wouldn't know it having co-authored a book, but but it's exactly right. Each chapter was just one of us. Our editor asked us. She said, you know, when I'm editing this, should I be trying to sort of combine? your voices should I be trying to get to a coherent voice for them no no good luck like that's not that's gonna, still gonna be possible that's not gonna happen but there were there were some cool moments like uh the the neat thing I think for for both of us like so much of our work had been digital so much of it had been online and it was neat to create a physical thing like an actual thing that people could hold and so a lot of the the chapter like figuring out the chapter order figuring out all of that was was cutting out tiny little slips of paper and putting them all over our dining room table and sort of reorganizing and ordering them to make it all make sense. And that that physicality was really fun, especially for folks who, who mostly sort of work in, in the digital realm. Yeah, I love the idea of it. It's definitely, it's a goal of ours to be able to do something like that. So it's inspirational. It's great to hear um, the process, even though it sounds even scarier than <laughs> I thought it would. Um, but that's awesome. So congrats on publishing that. Yeah, you two have uh, worked with a lot of companies and founders. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what some of the most successful habits that uh, founders have? And also kind of like on the flip side too, what are what are some habits that a lot of founders have that are holding them back? I think I, I would just start off and say sleep is one of the most amazing restorative habits. And it, it's a resilience building habit. And it sounds ridiculous, but I think there's so much reward in a in a founding context to keep going even well beyond the point where you're tired right there's so much reward for i'm just going to send that one more email i'm just going to you know write that partner i'm just going to do that last little bit of work i'm just going to the kids are going to go to bed i'm going to sign back on i think that 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 never-ending cycle um can wear you down and most founding like most founders will tell you it's a longevity game right it's like can you can you marathon right it's not a sprint and so can you set up structures for yourself where where you do go to bed where you are sort of build building that that sort of internal resilience because things will come up right it's sort of the nature of founding and and you you want to be at your best and i think a lot of folks uh who do this really well they know what it, they know what they need in order to be at their best there's this uh essay that we quote all the time that i think is you know 75 percent helpful um 
from a, a woman named Molly Graham, and, and she wrote this essay a couple years ago now talking about giving away your Legos, that as a founder or an executive in a, in a fast-moving organization, a fast-growing organization, whatever you're working on now that you feel like you're just getting on top of and you've got some systems for it and it's not the giant mess that it was six months ago, we can hire a team for that now. Like, you have to give that away now because we need your brain over here on the stuff that's a great big giant mess and nobody else knows how to resolve it, right? We can staff against the stuff once you systematize it. And and so you end up constantly, like in order to keep growing, you end up having to get things just to the point where it starts to feel good and then hand them off and go back to something else. I think that's a useful kick for founders that are having trouble letting go, that that you do need to give away your Legos, that it's okay, that it's not a... It's not a sign of failure that, that you're no longer technical enough to understand our product or whatever. Um, it's that we need you on other things. I say 75% because sometimes you have to do the other thing, right? That, that the thing that founders do that, that is really a, a breakout driver of success is developing an intuition about when I need to let things go, uh, when I'm in it mostly just because I, I enjoy it or because I'm attached to it or because it's it's associated with my former source of strength, right? I'm an engineer, I don't like to get out of the code, whatever. Um, and when you need to come back in and say, wait, this is not being run well. I delegated, I tried to do all the things the Medium posts tell me to do, but like, it's not going the way the business needs to go. It, most of the founder-led organizations that we talk to are, are pretty young, and it's still really important that the founder's point of view be really reflected in the way that we do the work. So, so finding that balance, I think, is a, a really important one. Um, the other one I'd say is that as your organization gets bigger, um, strong founders develop an instinct that they need to, to communicate more, but communicate in a really specific way, right? The advice you get is always like, you know, you, you have to say things five times more than you think you need to, seven times more than you think you need to, 20 times more than you, but like if you just walk into every room and, and just have this speech prepared that you repeat daily, it's not gonna, it's not gonna change any behavior, right? Getting really systematic about um, here are our priorities for the business and here's why. Here's, what, here's what's keeping me up at night and here's the stuff I think we're spending too much time on because I don't care about it anymore, right? Noticing that and, and articulating it instead of counting on everybody else to read your mind is, is a hard skill, but really important. Yeah, I think one of the most dangerous sentences we hear founders utter is it should be obvious. It should be obvious to anyone who's paying attention. Um, and it, it, it presupposes so much about what's going on in other people's heads. And I think any time a founder, if they replaced, it should be obvious to when was the last time I said it? And how have I communicated this? And where would the people who I expect to know this have learned it? Um, that reflex of shifting it from, I expect everybody else to know what's in my head, to I am doing I am doing a lot more lifting on ensuring that I get that stuff out there. I think it's a, it's a really important shift. You worked with a founder um, a really thoughtful guy and really trying to make sure that his business did not turn into the cliche, right? And we were talking to him about organizational values and they were a smaller company than would typically have these values articulated, but good for them. And one of their values was act like an owner. And I'm like, okay, act like an owner. What does that mean? I think I know what that means. What does that mean? And he told this, he's like, okay, so imagine you walk into a garage and everybody's running around and we're building a car right? And there's pieces all over the garage, right? When you come into that garage, do not wait for somebody to tell you what to do. Like we're all building the car as fast as we can. And the car keeps falling apart anytime we stop paying attention to it. So like, if you see a part on the ground, pick it up and put it on the car, right? That's what I mean by act like an owner. And I'm like, that's a, that's a really cool way of framing it. 
would I know that if there was just a poster on the door that said like act like an owner would I know that that's what you mean and when you grow when you stop being a 20 person company and you start being a hundred person company and you're hiring someone whose full-time job is just managing your paid ad spend on Facebook and Google right that person's a like a, a high performance engine mechanic they they don't know if you're building a car or a truck like unless you really help them out all they're going to do is focus on this one thing that they're incredibly good at and you want them focused on that one thing that they're incredibly good at the assumption that they're going to walk into the garage know what all the parts do and how to put them on the car it's just not true anymore right you made your company bigger than that and that that reinvention is another really important piece. What is kind of like the big hairy goal for Raw Signal Group within the Toronto community? Are we allowed to say exist? <laughs> I feel like every founder, like if they're being honest, right? That's, I, I don't know, maybe maybe there there should be something sort of bigger and loftier there, but I feel like we we are doing this work because we feel like it needs to exist in the world and we're, we're so passionate about sort of the, the work that we're doing. But I think the there's such an element of gratitude baked in there, right? Which is that like every day that we get to come in and do this work, that's amazing. Like that is that is such a neat thing. And I think for many folks who are out there building things, like they're they're right there with us in terms of like, it is a really cool thing to be able to wake up and, and put stuff out into the world. Yeah, I think um, there's like the lofty version and then there's the fighty version, right? That I feel like, uh, when we started this, we, there's a manifesto hidden on our website, right? And, and it is still very focused on tech because it's where we came from. And we say, like, this is not the utopia we were promised. And um, I think part of the thing that drives us is that we want work to be better. And we want work to be better globally. But I will say, like, from a sort of chip on my shoulder, secondary marketplace, um, I want Toronto to lead that right? I, I want Toronto to lead that or Montreal to lead that or Chicago to lead that. What I don't want is for SF to lead. That. I want them to be great too. But like of all the places we do work, we do less work in California. Um, partly because like all these other markets are really underserved. There's, there's people trying hard, right? To do a good job. And, and they see some like meetup that's hosted, you know, in Palo Alto and like, well, I, I can't get there from here. Right. And I just feel like the, there's such an opportunity to make the world of work better across the board. That's the lofty version of it. But like, I'm, I'm cheering for every other market to dominate that conversation over the valley. Alrighty, so for the questions that we love to ask everyone, um, for both of you to answer them as well, uh, what is your favorite thing that Toronto has that no other city does? I feel like, one of the things that I love, like I moved to Toronto for Jonathan. I moved to Toronto because Jonathan was here and I was in, out in California and I'd been in the Valley for like more than a decade. And when I came to Toronto, I think the thing that struck me was that it was a city, but it was so livable that it was it was sort of a very urban cosmopolitan international city. And, and there were people from all over who had come to make their life here and you could you could live here and you could live here for a long time. I think for for me coming from California, like in San Francisco, you never saw teenagers. You never saw kids basically over age five. And part of the reason is it got so expensive that a lot of the families moved out. There was this mass migration that happened where families couldn't afford to live in San Francisco. And you'd have to be like sort of ultra, ultra wealthy to, to sort of be able to afford to have kids in San Francisco. And so it, like most of the service job, like you never saw teenagers ever. And I think the thing that struck me when I got to Toronto was like, 
there were I, I was at the grocery store and there was a teenager bagging my groceries and I was like wow there's there's teenagers there are young people there are kids there are families there are people who are older who have lived in Toronto their whole lives and really California um, had gotten so expensive that most of what you saw in San Francisco were were sort of young urban professionals but that was it and I think the neat part about Toronto that you that maybe you can find other places but I found sort of unique here is that you get you get everybody and it's a place where everybody can thrive and that's cool that's really cool you know we we did this event back in September and it was our first time doing management training as a ticketed event instead of you know one company at a time and we had this moment where there were, there were about 70 people there and we had this moment where we were looking out on a break and it just like the the room looked like Toronto and that was really cool that was just really cool I I grumped a, a couple months ago about a, a photo of YC Demo Day, and, and it looked a lot like me, right? It looked like a thousand me's. Um, and I, I try to be kind to myself. I try to like me, but, like, but it was so much cooler for me to, to look out at, at what we did with Better Boss and, and see that like, this is stuff that can, that can reach a bunch of different people from a bunch of different places. For anyone visiting Toronto, is there a place you recommend they must go? The Boardwalk. Like the boardwalk, I think it, you know, we're, we're east right now. We're in the distillery district right now, which is beautiful and lovely. But I think the, the piece that most folks who are from Toronto don't always know is that the beach, like Ashbridge Bay, is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful all year long, like not just in the summertime. And I feel like people can live in Toronto their whole lives and not necessarily know that there's a boardwalk here. And it's one of the most special and peaceful places, I think, in all of Toronto. Yeah, I from a similar water place, I think... Uh, I know this because when I when I worked at Mozilla, I worked in the Toronto office, and we'd have people fly in from other offices all the time, uh, and they flew into Pearson, and they took the gardener into downtown, and they were surrounded by steel and glass, and anytime we could, we'd say, get on a ferry, go to the island, have lunch at the Rectory Cafe, like just, it's it's such an amazing water city, and we forget it. Um, there's a there's hundred great parks and, and secret spots in Toronto, but like... If somebody was visiting for the first time, they should get on a ferry. Yeah, it's totally true. I used to come here for work, and when I started flying up for work, I would I would fly into Pearson and hang out downtown and stay at One King West and, and never know that there was anything outside of the downtown core. And so much of the like special magic of Toronto is outside of the downtown core. And um, what was your very first job? Oh, my very first job was babysitting, if that counts as a real first job. My very first job that I had a pay stub for was lifeguarding. Mine, I, I worked in a warehouse. Um, I got paid cash under the table because I think it was probably below the legal working age. Uh, and my job was to take a, a great big pump truck and move big heavy boxes from one side of the warehouse to the other side of the warehouse. It was it was not my most motivating work, but that was that was the first gig. That was out in Mississauga. For any entrepreneurs out there who want to do what, what you are doing, what are the first steps they should take? When we started the business, we had already quit our jobs and, and brought our household income to zero. That's maybe not the way to do it. But um, we had 200 coffees. Uh, we didn't set that as a goal. We, we realized in hindsight, we're like, man, we've, we've had a lot of coffees. Uh, we both like coffee. That helps. But uh, 200 between the two of us with investors, with founders, with managers, with sort of anyone who wanted to talk about what was going on. And you know, some of them were, were, most of them were great, honestly. Um, they weren't strategic. It wasn't like we, we met only with investors. We met only with like HR professionals. We just developed a, a sense of it. And that, that has informed our intuition a lot. Um, I'd say that's, that's a thing I'd, I'd really 
would have trouble calculating the value of, but it was, it was massive. Thank you both so much for answering all of our questions and talking a lot about org structure because um, I definitely think it's needed uh, nowadays still and there's a lot of gaps in tech companies. So thank you so much. Thank you both. This was so fun. We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until, Until next time. time.